Welcome to Truthfinder, where we seek crucial answers to critical questions about belief. Hello to everyone. Welcome back. I am your host, Dr. Elijah Sadafel, and welcome to Truthfinder, the podcast, episode number three, part two, where we will be searching for a meaningful answer to the critical question, why is there something rather than nothing? In part one, we talked about the importance of asking why, we discussed causality and the skepticism of David Hume, and we also dismantled the proposition that the universe came from nothing. In this week's episode, part two, we're going to explore four other possibilities that attempt to explain why the universe exists. So let's get started. So our next response or next explanation as to why the universe exists is that the universe created itself. Self-creation is an absurd idea and is logically false by definition. Why? Because for something to create itself, it has to exist before it exists. This is irrational and violates the first law of logic, the law of non-contradiction. What is the law of non-contradiction? It says that something cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same relationship. This is why I cannot be my wife's husband and not be my wife's husband at the same time. Even if something were to develop gradually by itself, this essentially means that it initially self-creates, which it cannot. Medically speaking, absolutely nothing involved in operation of the human body self-creates, and even the bad stuff like cancer exists because of something else. Namely, normal regulatory systems aren't working properly. However, in spite of this gross violation in logic, there still remains a nagging sentiment that somehow the universe self-creates. Daniel Dennett, a prominent atheistic thought leader, makes the assertion that in the ultimate bootstrapping trick, the universe created itself. He makes this assertion in his book, Breaking the Spell. There are some arguments that say, although self-creation is not probable, it still remains possible because of chance. That is, theoretically speaking, even if the chance of self-creation were 1 to 10 to the 100th power, enough time would essentially guarantee this seemingly impossible phenomenon. But guess what? Chance is not a cause. Chance is only an effect of mathematical computation. Chance is merely descriptive, possesses no power, and therefore does not produce concrete effects in real life. As R.C. Sproul has written, The fact is, however, we have a no-chance chance creation. What are the real chances of a universe created by chance? Not a chance. Chance is incapable of creating a single molecule, let alone an entire universe. Why not? Chance is no thing. It is not an entity. It has no being, no power, no force. It can affect nothing, for it has no causal power within it. It has no itness to be within. To say the universe is created by chance is to say the universe is created by nothing. Because chance is no thing, it can't do anything. Why? Because no things don't exist in concrete reality. If something has no being, it can't do anything. Gravity is invisible, but it exists. Because it exists, it has the power to cause effects. 
For something to do something, it must first be something. Chance has no matter or energy. Fundamentally, chance is the same as nothing, and out of nothing, nothing comes. This actually points back to the first response to why the universe exists, as discussed in the last podcast. The bottom line is this. Chance is not a causal agent. Chance describes the likelihood that a legitimate cause will yield a tangible effect, but chance has no influence on either the cause or the effect. Because chance is no thing, whenever a person says, it happened because of chance, what they are really saying is, it happened because of nothing, and I don't know why it happened, and I will label that ignorance chance. If the chances that the Giants will beat the Eagles are 10 to 1, then the odds of 10 to 1 never causes the Giants to win. The talent and effort of the players is the cause. In this case, the odds exert no effect on the players because chance is not only blind but non-existent. Chance is meaningful to us only in order to describe like what is more likely to happen. When I met my wife in a medical school library more than a decade ago, it was not chance that brought us together. What caused us to be there was the need to pass our exams. That external cause just so happened to position she and I to be in the same place at the same time. Chance effects do not exist. Only caused effects do. So, there is no plausible explanation as to why the universe came into existence by creating itself or by chance, so we will strike these options off the list. The next response to consider in answering the question, why does the universe exist, is that the universe has always been there, or, to put it another way, the universe is eternal. Bertrand Russell developed the idea of infinite regress meaning that our reality is the result of a series of contingent causes that stretches all the way back to infinity. After all, why does anyone need to reach outside the universe when everything we need is presumably already here? Why can't the universe be the very thing that has lasted forever? In this model, nothing starts the chain of causes because the chain has always been there. Of course, this begs the question as to why and how the chain got started in the first place. Famously, Frederick Copleston dismissed the postulation of infinite regress as inconceivable. He writes, If you add up chocolates, you get chocolates after all and not sheep. If you add up chocolate to infinity, you presumably get an infinite number of chocolates. So if you add up contingent beings to infinity, you still get contingent beings, not a necessary being. An infinite series of contingent beings will be, to my way of thinking, as unable to cause itself as one contingent being. The funny thing is, modern science has already addressed the question of if the universe is eternal or not. The answer is no, because the Big Bang tells us that the universe had a birthday. To very quickly summarize, the Big Bang theory basically says that billions of years ago, there was a point of singularity, and in this point was crammed all the matter and energy in the universe. Then, this point rapidly expanded and formed the universe that we have today. 
Resultantly, just as you would expect in such a rapid and dramatic expansion, you have what was organized moving toward more disorganization. The second law of thermodynamics states that disorder always increases with time. So, the universe had to have had a discrete beginning, otherwise it would be in a state of complete disorder by now. The plain English translation of all of this is simple. The universe had an absolute beginning and therefore the universe is not eternal. But you don't have to take my word for it. Consider the words of J.M. Wersinger, Professor Emeritus of Physics at Auburn University. He says, At first the scientific community was very reluctant to accept the idea of a birth of the universe. Not only did the Big Bang model seem to give in to the Judeo-Christian idea of a beginning of the world, but it also seemed to have to call for an act of supernatural creation. It took time, observational evidence, and careful verification of predictions made by the Big Bang model to convince the scientific community to accept the idea of a cosmic genesis. Well, what about the multiverse? To those who are unfamiliar, the multiverse refers to the idea that our universe is but one of a multitude of hypothetical universes in the multiverse set. Interestingly, in 2003, three scientists proved that any universe that is expanding like ours cannot be eternal and must have beginning. And this proof holds true regardless of the peculiarities of the early universe that exist in the multiverse set. In other words, their theorem says that even if we live in a multiverse, then the multiverse must have an absolute beginning. Consider what Alexander Vilenkin, one of the authors of the theory, says. It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. But what if the point of singularity is eternal? Well, the first problem with this assertion is that the point of singularity changed and the effect was our universe. The other problem is that if the point of singularity is eternal, then where is it now? What if just a pocket of the universe is eternal? Well, one thing is clear. The known pockets of our reality are not eternal, like my collared shirt or the microphone that I am speaking into. So as one variant of the argument goes, the constituent stuff that these finite things are made of is potentially eternal. Another variant is that there is a corner of the cosmos that is the source of existence within the cosmos, so there is no need to venture outside. Now let's think about this logically. If there is a pocket of the universe that is eternal, then this part of the universe is separate and distinct from the universe. For instance, it is not expanding and not moving toward disorganization. It is therefore not transcendent in a spatial sense, but in a sense of being. Still, as far as we know, this postulation is not true because matter is not eternal. Matter manifests signs of mutability and decay. Water, or H2O, changes from ice to liquid to vapor as a function of more heat. H2O is contingent and is in the process of moving from one state to another. It is therefore not eternal as a function of the fact that it can be in effect. 
Water is not an uncaused cause. Only an uncaused cause can be in a state of pure being and can never be in effect. Remember the second core principle of Truthfinder. All human beings must die. That is because we are composed of matter that decays over our lifetimes and results in our death. Why? Because matter is not eternal, and because it is not eternal, we do not live forever. All of this points to the simple fact that our current knowledge about the universe has no evidence of a piece of the universe being eternal. Using the example of H2O, it is also very clear that matter by itself does not exist necessarily because matter is contingent on elementary particles like leptons and quarks, which are considered to be the ultimate constituents of matter. In physics, elementary particles are addressed in the standard model, which describes what the basic building blocks of matter are and how they interact. These elementary particles, as far as we know, cannot be broken down any further. So, the next question is, where do these elementary particles come from? And how do they come to be? Because once again, we are back to our original question of why without an explanation. Theoretically speaking, we would also expect that if these particles were eternal, they ought to imbue eternality to the matter that they ultimately constitute. What we know about matter is just the opposite, that it exhibits changeability. So, the inference that parts of the universe is eternal is really saying that part of the universe is something inherently different from the rest of the universe. But here's the problem. This proposition still does not answer the question as to why this something is eternal and opens up a new question. Why is this eternal something, in a spatial sense, coexistent with that which is not eternal? Once again, in trying to resolve one problem, we have created another. So, there is no plausible explanation as to why the universe came into existence with an eternal universe. This explanation is not reasonable using both philosophy and modern science. Because we have eliminated all other possibilities, we now turn to our final explanation as to why there is something rather than nothing. So our final response is that the universe was created by something self-existent. The 18th century mathematician and co-discoverer of calculus, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, seriously contemplated the question as to why anything exists. Leibniz relied on Thomas Aquinas before him and articulated that ultimately there are two very distinct things that exist things that exist necessarily, and things that exist contingently. Things that exist necessarily exist by the necessity of their own nature. Hence, these things cannot not exist. Things that exist contingently exist as a result of an external cause. Hence, these things can fail to exist and can not exist. Concrete things are all contingent. So according to Leibniz, an explanation of a thing's existence can be found either in necessity or contingency. The resulting conclusion is that in order to affect our reality and start a chain of causation, there by necessity had to be something that had to exist necessarily. This being would be an uncaused cause 
the unmoved mover, and an eternal self-existent being that caused the universe's existence. This self-existent being has an explanation for its existence in its own nature. This being does not have a cause because that would be absurd. This being has inherent eternal existence and addresses the need for a spark to light the fuse of reality. Those who object to the notion that a self-existent being cannot have a cause are ironically validating the necessity that something be self-existent and the first cause of everything. This objection is rooted in the need for a proper explanation which self-existence provides. So why a necessary being rather than no being? Isn't it much simpler to have the latter? Well, of course no being would be simpler, but the universe is very complicated, and as we have learned, nothingness is no explanation at all. This concept touches upon the next episode subject matter, why the universe is complicated, but the basic truth is that a simpler explanation would only suffice if reality itself were simple. For example, a dozen lifeless atoms bouncing around in the infinite depths of space. And if that was the case, this intellectual exercise would not exist. Also, Leibniz's argument can be logically extended to say that the first cause by necessity should also be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial in order to affect what is temporal, in space, and material. Centuries ago, Thomas Aquinas said that this self-existent being was the ens necessarium, or the necessary being. Why? Two reasons. The first reason is a rational one. Because something exists right now, then something always had to exist. Why is that? Because ex nihilo nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So if there ever was a time when nothing existed, the most we would expect now is nothing. Being only comes from being. The second premise supporting the ends necessarium is ontological necessity. What this means is that this self-existent being isn't real because someone can think through a logical argument on paper. Rather, the ends necessarium possesses the power to be as a function of itself, so that it cannot not be. This may seem otherworldly, and that is precisely the point, because in our universe, you and I and every other person is in a state of being that is dependent. We rely, for example, on our parents, food, oxygen, blood, and water. Right now I am living, but there will be a time when I am not. The ends necessarium is in a perpetual state of being that is independent of everything. In the last episode, I spoke about David Hume's analogy of a pool table to describe causality. So while the idea of an ends necessarium may seem remote and very abstract, think of the eight ball in the pool table. It would be possible for the eight ball sitting still in the pocket of a pool table to reason backward and determine that something had to push it into its current predicament. It would be another thing altogether for the eight ball to reason backwards and determine the cause of its being there was a pool player with arms, legs, and an intellect. What is very interesting is that the idea of necessary existence does not apply only to a mystical realm where the passions and dreams of poets dwell. Rather, this idea has appreciation in the field of math and metaphysics, 
in that some uphold the idea that numbers exist necessarily. Indeed, it will be difficult to think of a world without numbers or, for example, a world where the number seven went missing. The point is that necessary existence is not just an abstract idea, but something concrete that has palpable appreciation in real life. Now let's be clear. If we reason back to the beginning of time and say that logically speaking, a self-existent being must exist, this does not prove that a self-existent being exists. Yet, as long as a self-existent being is a reasonable option, the demand that everything have a cause is unqualified, not because it mounts a barrier to the existence of a self-existent being, but because it refuses to listen to the sensible conclusions of reason and logic. Accordingly, the line of reasoning leading up to a self-existent being makes a reasonable argument using rationality. This is how basic decisions are made, otherwise one would be left with foolishness. Indeed, existence is very different from its predicates, and reason alone cannot know conclusively whether or not a self-existent being exists or does not exist. The question now becomes, what can reason reasonably ascertain based on logic and empirical evidence? So, there is a plausible explanation as to why the universe came into existence with an eternal, self-existent being. Is this being God? Well, there is no way to neatly connect these dots for everyone with an aha piece of evidence. On the same token, what else would a practical person call an eternal, self-existent being that is the first cause of the universe? What I hope I have made clear throughout this entire episode is that I never ever made the leap from dismantling one assertion with reason to saying, therefore it can't be God, or therefore it must be God. Either position need not be assumed just to fill in a gap of knowledge or to rationalize a worldview. However, for the atheist, nothing is not a real answer to why, and this position is therefore untenable. It is also simply unacceptable to adopt nothing as a reflexive response to theism. Furthermore, it is also clear that other non-theistic propositions, that the universe created itself and that the universe is eternal, are not only not plausible, but have significant evidence weighing against them. Subsequently, it is very intriguing that what we are left with is a working hypothesis of a self-existent being without any reference to any theistic truth claims. In other words, reasonable people sitting down and chatting over the course of a long afternoon with a bottle of wine could produce all of the postulations in this episode using their minds and what has been discovered about the universe alone. Does what we have discovered dismantle any theistic truth claims? Indeed it does. So instead of having a belief system tell you traits of a self-existent being, you can formulate a rational working framework and compare notes. Hence, it becomes clear very quickly that many modes of theistic belief are inherently nonsensical. Monism is irrational because reality is not in fact singular and lacks within itself the necessary being to explain itself. Pantheism is irrational because if God is in everything, then God can be reduced to subatomic particles which lack sufficient causal power to yield the effects that create the universe. 
panentheism is irrational for the same reasons as pantheism and for the fact that mutability of essence negates self-existence. Polytheism is irrational because it fails to address the need for an ends necessarium, that is, what explains the plethora of gods. This is exactly why when an atheist asks the question, what explains God, this is a perfectly legitimate and reasonable question. In fact, it is a question so legitimate that it dismantles four systems of theistic belief. As far as theism goes, all that's left is monotheism. Does what we have discovered support any theistic truth claims? What is being asked is, are there any theistic truth claims in which God claims to be self-existent and eternal, validating everything we have learned thus far? Amazingly, the answer is yes. First, in the opening verse of the Christian Bible in the Hebrew Torah is the verse which reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This implies a fundamental ontological distinction between the creator, the first cause, and what was created. This is anticipated from the ens necessarium in a model of twoism where there is the universe, number two, that we know, and the self-existent being, number one, that made it. Second, the God of the Bible is known by a particular name, Yahweh, in Hebrew. There is only one explanation for the name of God in the Bible, and it comes from the book of Exodus. So when Moses is speaking to God through the burning bush, he asks God what his name is. God responds by saying, I am who I am. I am comes from the Hebrew verb to be. So God's name is understood to mean he will be or he always is. The Greek translation of this Bible verse renders God's name into, I am the one who eternally is. This is quite captivating because in God's first revelation to the person that would lead the first group of followers, the Israelites, God answers by giving a name that denotes eternal being and self-existence. God did not answer and say, my name is Bob, or I am the one who is always becoming, or plainly, I am just the God. God used a permutation of the verb to be in the present tense to name himself. On top of that, there are verses within the Christian and the Jewish Bible that refer to God as both eternal and self-existent. It is quite fascinating that an unsophisticated, unscientific, and simple tribe in the Middle East thousands of years ago could worship a God that provides an answer to a cosmological and existential question that we are still asking thousands of years later, equipped with presupposed enlightenment, technology, and a vastly deeper ocean of knowledge. This is a fact well beyond coincidence or conspiracy. In the end, we have to put all this together and ask ourselves, when making an inference of the best explanation, which makes more sense? That a self-existent something made something that was derivative, or that our universe has either no explanation or an explanation that can be dismantled using words on paper. The universe is not just a brutal fact because that line of reasoning can lead anyone to believe anything that their hearts desire. It is more than reasonable to conclude that a self-existent, eternal being is the reason why there is something rather than nothing. In this episode, we considered why anything exists in the first place. 
But this actually is a very small question in a series of much bigger and much more complicated existential questions and our search for ultimate truth. After all, it's one thing to have something as opposed to nothing, but it's an entirely different playing field when we contemplate the complexity, design, and fine-tuning of the universe. Reality could just be a bunch of molecules in a cold, dark corner of the cosmos, but as we all know, reality is tremendously grander than that. A very small variation from equilibrium is vastly more probable than the gigantic variation necessary to create everything as complicated as the universe in which we live. Even more, we could have lived in a very bland generic reality, but we have the beauty of sunsets and supermodels. So, I hope you will join me next time for Truthfinder Episode 4, when we will search for clarity and meaningful answers to the critical question, why is there life instead of things? Everyone take care. Until next time. If I was making a world, it would be much easier to make rocks and dirt than to make human beings and salmon. So join me for Truthfinder's next episode, why is there life instead of things?